Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome Tim Fessenden. Tim is the president at Property Base, a rapidly growing technology company. In this episode, we discover how his ability to translate technology into customer value has enabled him to scale his career to the very top. This is his playbook. sales edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at Blade Logic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick Harrison. Great to be here. And it's an absolute honour and privilege to be joined today by Tim Fessenden. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Really looking forward to this. As am I. So, for the benefit of our viewers and our listeners today, Tim Fessenden, currently president at Property Base. It's been a truly remarkable career where you've been loyal to the, to the playbook members, uh, Vance, pretty much your whole career all the way through to the present day. Um, and whilst we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about your current role and your current endeavors, just want to start right at the beginning and just tell us where did your passion for technology start? So, yeah, so uh, great question. So, you know, I came, I actually went to school at a business school, a small independent, but well-known and well-established business school called Babson College out here in the greater Boston area. And there really wasn't much in the way of technology. A lot of finance people, a lot of marketing folks come out of there, a lot of accounting, all my friends were that. I was the only one coming out of school at that time that saw, Hey, you know, there's, you know, then remember this was mid nineties, late nineties, and it was pretty hot back then to, uh, you know, everybody was, was investing in technology. And yes, I saw that as a means to an, to an end, obviously it was, you know, ride the wave of growth around tech. Uh, I never thought of myself purely really as a technologist. I thought of myself as, you know, a hopefully an intelligent business person making, looking at large macroeconomic shifts and figuring out, you know, who's going to be the winners and who's who going to be the losers. And I saw uh, technology as a clear sort of, you know, tailwind in the, in the market. So I said, how do I, how do I get there? You know, I never had any training in technology, just sort of identified that that was the place I wanted to live and breathe. So 
This was the, uh, the dot-com boom. It was just, yeah, prior to most people, when they say dot-com, they follow the word bust. So it was a couple of years just prior to the dot-com bust that everybody and their mother was building a web, some sort of B2B or B2C, mostly a lot of B2B at the time. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I started interviewing right out of the gate uh, uh, with technology consulting firms and, you know, actual implementation firms. And I recognized also at that time that you could go and, you know, work for the large big, big shop consulting firms. And, you know, you could try to make your way through the noise or you could really get in at the ground floor at something really early on. And that's where I met uh, Vance Loisel, who actually was an alum of Babson and came back to look for some talent. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, small company, I think at the time they were just maybe a half a dozen people, small company called Eggrock Partners. Mm. And Vance had just joined there as well. And he just was looking for some bench strength. And so I jumped right in. I didn't have a single ounce of development experience in my life, but I was hired on as a developer at uh, Ed Rock <laughs> Partners, knowing full well that that was going to be a short-lived endeavor. I, you know, I just knew that, again, a means to an end. Yeah. And, uh, you can, and, and that's really what it was. Ed Rock was a, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still work with Vance today to this day. So, you know, obviously that's worked out pretty well. And, uh, and so just to fast forward there, yeah, I worked from Egg Rock and we worked our way ultimately uh, via acquisition with the company that had a hosting division. And then that ultimately made its way to Blade Logic. Uh, we can talk more about that for sure. So, yeah, so tell us a little bit. Obviously, Breakaway acquired Egg Rock. Um, and obviously, that was the first time that you obviously also met Dave, which yeah. I suppose that's the first time that the, the Trinity, the founding Trinity, were obviously <laughs> together for the first time. Absolutely, right? yes. So, uh, Egg Rock was a, a, a consulting shop that did you know, development, uh, some client server, some web-based development. And we, uh, our major competitor was Breakaway Solutions. And they were at the time called it a full service provider. Uh, there was managed service providers back then and, and Breakaway called themselves an FSP, a full service provider. which is a fancy way of saying we would uh, design and build the app and then would flip it over the fence to our hosting division and we'd host the app. You know, so SaaS before SaaS was SaaS, I guess. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we got acquired into to Breakaway. It was our you know, number one competitor with Eggrock. Uh, and yeah, we, we were added into sort of the, the hosting side of the house. We had a small division at Egg Rock that Vance was leading the charge on that was starting to build up our own hosting offering. And so it was a natural fit to roll in. And that's really, you know, David Acheri was overseeing that whole side of the house. And that's where we all, you're right. That's where it all, it all came together. Uh, yeah. Did you have visibility on, on, you know, the whole blade lock logic idea? How, how did that kind of materialize? Yeah, it, it materialized right then and there, you know, on the hosting side. So uh, we, we had various groups. We had infrastructure people. We had database folks. I worked in the application management and maintenance space where we would do ongoing you know, development work post-launch. But what the, the, the yeah, the, the main pain point, I remember it clearly. We would get called. The whole group would get called and say, all right, all hands on deck. We got to apply this, you know, patch for some database issue or some virus that was, uh, was threatening the, 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 the environment. And all hands on deck. You take these servers. You take these servers. And, you know, we weren't that big. At the, you know, nowadays we, we consider it very small. But I think we maybe had a few hundred servers at the end of the day. Mm. But the amount of manpower that was being used 
to try to solve that problem was enormous. And that was really the seed that, that started, uh, you know, what ultimately became Blade Logic. You know, David Acharya and, and BJ Minwani got together, uh, started having conversations, obviously, with Vance and another gentleman by the name of Steve Prokinos and, and, and a few others, right? And they got together and said, hey, we, we think there's a big challenge here. You know, you remember this is, you know, early 2000s, very early 2000s virtualization was just taking form, right? VMware was really in its early days. Yeah. It had not uh, really hit the production systems. People were still using it in test environments, but not really in production. But you could see, again, this macro wave happening of, okay, this is not a capital expenditure issue in the long haul. This is an operational expenditure. This is an OPEX problem. You're just shifting the, the cost. Right? You're not buying hardware, but you're hiring five people to manage this massive growth in and infrastructure. And you could see it forming in our, in our world uh, back then in 2001, 2002, so, or even early 2000, 2001. So again, looking at the macro trends and saying, okay, this is something that, you know, this has got some legs. Mm. Fantastic. And um, from speaking before, Tim, I believe there was, there was quite a lot going on in your life at the time. How, how did things go from a, a fantastic idea and conversations through to that that initial getting, getting off the ground? Yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, there was certainly conversations that were being had at the investment level, the VC level, um, mm. uh, but BJ and Dave were running. They were identifying opportunities. I think they were both entrepreneurs and residents at the time at their respective venture capital firms. So they were looking at a lot of business plans and, and they had some partners in there that really helped them identify, you know, uh, really a technology and a company called Network Shell that formed the basis of, of the beginnings of Blade Logic. You yeah. know, I became aware of it pretty early on, you know, that there was something brewing here. Uh, mm. I can't recall if it was probably Vance who gave me the tip and said, hey, like, we're doing something here. And uh, if you can find your way out of Breakaway, you know, come join the team. Mm. And the time Breakaway was going through some challenges of its own, everybody, that was when the bust portion of the dot-com era was <laughs> in full effect and people yeah. were unwilling to pay their bills. And so, uh, you know, Breakaway was going through its series of layoffs almost on a weekly basis. And so I, I had some very creative conversations with some of the leadership there and said, if you can find my way to a list somewhere, that would be great because I'd like to uh, make my next move. And uh, sure enough, that exited on a Friday, started up um, that Monday, at, uh, I guess technically we were not incorporated at the time, but we did have a, we did sublease a couple of rows of office space in a little office in, uh, Waltham, Massachusetts and, uh, started that Monday. And I think, you know, at that time there was the founders and, uh, two folks from network show and, you know, mm. maybe a couple other people there may, was no more than 10 of us at the time for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, See, I know your your early job titles in those days were around pre-sales and product management. I'm sure there were lots of of different hats. Did did you come into a specific role initially, or was it? So yeah, I came in initially to Blade Logic day one. Uh, I think the initial thought was that I'd come in and I would grow a services practice. Remember, we kind of came to software through the services background. I rocked mm -hmm. Breakaway. Yeah, you know, we were. We, were, we did not grow up as product people, right? We're product people now, but that's not where we started. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I think the initial thought was come in and, and grow a services practice, but there were no customers to service, right? There was no revenue to generate. We had to build a product first. I mean, sure, we had 
you know, the network shell product as a beginning thing that we could sell. But that was, you know, it was a tool that Linux admins would use. It was command line mostly. There was a little bit of a UI, but it was not something you'd go and sell a professional services contract around, right? It was a, mm. a tool that, that was really there for the, the technical folks. Yeah. And so we had to spend months building it out. So the very, very first uh, role was really uh, where I, I, I guess I, I helped deliver the first version of the product, whether that you call that sort of product management or helping out on the engineering function. It was all hands on deck, like you said, QA the product, uh, get your hands dirty where you could, even code a little bit, I think, at the time. Again, I, I, do not fa I don't fancy myself a developer by any stretch, but I was technical enough to at least assist the, the problem that we had, which was get this thing out in a timely manner. Uh, but yeah, that was the early days. We had, a, we had the fortune, great fortune of having a couple of sort of uh, op opportunities that were very early on. In fact, I think in the first month or two of our incorporation, we, we closed our first large customer company wow. called Sprint, Sprint Hosting, uh, which no longer exists, but it was a hosting division within Sprint. And uh, we had the benefit of, that, of using them as sort of a you know, uh, help guide our development efforts. You know, in many ways, they had been living the challenge that we were building software for, for many years. Yeah, sure, we lived it for a while at Breakaway, but they were living the challenge day in and day out. And so we, we rode them, you know, and said, these folks are going to get us to the, the glory land. Uh, just listen to them. You know, and that's key. I think that's one of the things I take away in my, my business life here is, uh, yeah, listen to your customers, but really identify the ones that are really going to help you get there. And then really lean in, go all in on those folks. And maybe that's, you might have hundreds of customers, but at the end of the day, you're probably going to hang your hat on, on two or three, maybe five of those that are really going to get you there mm. and, and listen to those folks. And they were the first ones for sure. And mm. so, yeah, sure. we lesson learned early on in the, uh, in, in the life there at BladeLogic. Yeah, that's actually an element of your playbook. So you've actually highlighted that as, as, as one kind of key component where I suppose that's quite early on in your career to kind of learn that and actually continue that all the way through. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the, I mean, I didn't probably know it then, right? You know, you get the benefit of hindsight and you, you put, you know, cleaner words to everything. But, uh, but back then it was very much like, hey, you know, these people know what they're talking about. And then it, it, it moved on. Our, our next customer was Priceline. And they really said, hey, you got to take this thing that you think is an infrastructure problem. It's really an application problem. And you know what? People pay more for application than they do for infrastructure. Infrastructure is a cost center. Applications drive revenue. So which side of the equation do you want to be on, BladeLogic? And, and that was a really another, another formative moment. Again, both of these happened within year one of, the, of that product's existence. Mm -hmm. Q4 and then again in like Q1 or Q2. So like we were, we were fortunate to have some folks that really helped us and guide us. And, you know, I try to take that on to, into future endeavors and say, who are those customers that you really got to lean on? Um, you know, as we think about, you know, always innovating. Mm. Sure. I suppose your, your role you're kind of leading the kind of the product QA type function at the moment. Obviously you said it's all hands on deck. So everyone's doing, everyone's really mucking in, but um, how was it that you're able to, to carry that task out without really having that technical backbone? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. So, you know, product management is, and some of these roles are very much about listening and translating. Right. And, uh, 
And I always pride my pride myself on having a sort of a, a broad understanding of all the key functions. And obviously in the role I'm in now, I need to have my hands dirty in all the functions, sales and marketing and services and support and engineering. Uh, and to the extent that you can communicate effectively with each of those functions and you can bridge, be that translation engine and bridge that gap, that is a, uh, in many ways, you know, you call it what you will, but that's like kind of the key function of a product manager is be able to translate. And so regardless of the role I was playing in the early days, maybe there was a QA role and then it became ultimately much more of a, a formal product management title. And then ultimately into sales engineering leadership, uh, always held that translation engine. And some of the folks that you've talked to, I know you're talking through in this series on the sales engineering side and, and even folks on the sales side, uh, the folks that were able to do that effectively, you know, gone on to very, very you know, lucrative and very successful careers in all sorts of roles, general manager roles, CTO roles, sales leadership roles, but uh, translating, translating customer pain into real requirements, uh, listening effectively and uh, is, is, is key to success. Because we don't all have the answers. Like I said, we were services guys coming into a challenge we had with, you know, 300 servers. Well, guess what? When you go and talk to Bank of America and they've got 25,000 servers around the globe. Well, our 300 servers, you know, our challenge there was a very different challenge than the Bank of America challenge. So guess what? Lean in and listen to those guys because they're probably going to take you to that next level. That's amazing. So were you able to run a proof of concept technically? Were you capable of, of running a proof of concept? By Myself personally? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Everybody, almost... <laughs> Every, any, the, the key thing about, about what we did at Blade Logic was that it, it worked. It was real. There was no faking, the, right? And so, and we, we were very proud of the fact that we brought very strong technical expertise. When we were going up against Opsware, yeah, they had technical expertise, but they were always viewed as sort of the sales and marketing kind of gurus, right? And really had that shiny element. We were the hard kind of lunch pail, bring your lunch pail, hard worker, type that uh that and we weren't afraid to kind of get a little dirty and not dirty in the sense of like practices but actually roll up your sleeves and and really educate yourself on the problem and and go to and go to work right i think we're a ton of hard workers within play logic and so yeah absolutely not only did i was i able to run them uh but for once i really kind of came into the sales engineering leadership role i had to build it and deliver it to, you know, 60, 70 sales engineers worldwide in a way that they could effectively run it locally mm. in a repeatable fashion and make sure they were hitting all the key differentiation points and the message and the talk tracks. So you really, it's one thing to do it yourself. It's another to package it up in a way that's, you know, scalable and repeatable to the masses. That was, mm. was a big challenge of what we had to do at Blade Logic. Mm. Fantastic. And in terms of um, obviously making that transition from um, early pre-sales into to management, Tim, um, what were the, for our listeners, what were the key qualities that enabled you to, to move into that leadership role still quite early in your career? Yeah, but yeah, it's true. So, you know, I, technically the sales engineering leadership role materialized more out of uh, necessity from the, the ranks, the rank and file sales engineers who were clamoring for some leadership. I was still in a product management role in the business unit, mm. but I found myself supporting that team. You remember at the time we probably had maybe 10 to 15 sales engineers 
but we were right there about to hit that hockey stick growth. And they were all reporting up into the regional sales leaders who by all at that time was still early on. They were still sort of understanding the value of a proof of concept and the value of the sales engineer's role. Right. I think Hmm. I heard you talk to Mark Musselman and he's, he was one of the great ones who really understood that early on, but some of the others, it took a little bit of time, right. That it was a partnership. Hmm. And so it was early days. Uh, but they were they were really struggling to have that support system. Uh, not that the sales folks didn't want to support them. It's just it's a very different person. I remember we were hiring Linux administrators and Unix administrators who we thought could could uh, could sell. And 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 so you know the training there was you know think about a sales leader right that has now got a, you know a couple of Unix administrators <laughs> working for them that is you know going on sales calls with them. Yeah. It's a very different beast. Right. And so, mm. and so I think, you know, they, they looked and they sort of, you know, sought out a support back at headquarters who could kind of um, be their advocate. And that's ultimately how that role became reality. You know, ultimately I switched and I started working for John McMahon uh, running the sales engineering team worldwide. I think we grew that team to over 60, 70 sales engineers uh, before we got acquired by, by BMC. And then that number got even higher, I think up to 120 or something like that sales engineers that were supporting the sales efforts. So, mm. uh, so I think it was largely about being the eyes, obviously owning the roadmap helps, you know, they always want to go to the guy who owns the roadmap and to get their thing, get their thing in. But, uh, but being the advocate at headquarters and again, having that ability to translate quickly, what they're saying is painful back in a way that we could turn and burn on, on some product capabilities and, and again, be the advocate. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about the uh, owning the roadmap. So tell us about that process. In fact, tell us about the transition from kind of pre pre McMahon, pre uh, Steve Strahan, and obviously you know that whole kind of roadmap and how you transitioned and what the kind of the key moments yeah. were for, for realizing that. Yeah. So we. So that's yes. So in the early days, yeah, we had those few successes, right? We had the sprint hosting, we had the price lines and they really drove the first year plus of, of roadmap, this kind of rode those horses. Um, what became clear on the back of that, now we're talking about 2002, 2003, is uh, there was a, you know, we had Enron and we had a few other uh, regulatory compliance uh, snafus out there in the, in the industry that were pretty costly. Not only people's livelihoods, but you know, some people went to jail for those things. And so Sarbanes-Oxley, um, PCI compliance started maybe a little few years later, but you had HIPAA, you had a lot of these regulations that didn't understand how, to, how technology would play into that. And so while the first wave of innovation and roadmap was driven by, okay, let's help out these operational improvements for sprints and price lines of the world, what we quickly found those folks were getting hit with was the regulatory or their auditors were coming in, the risk assessment folk were coming into the technology folks and saying, you got to give me like a stamp of approval here, guys, that like everything's good and you've got it all covered and everything's secure. And the technologists were saying like, I don't have the tools to like to make this secure. And so they would come to us again, listening to the customer. And we said, oh, wait, we've got this wave here. Now, do we have this virtualization wave, which is driving a lot of operational expenditure that was unforeseen and not forecasted? That's an operational issue. Now we have a risk issue in the, in the market. Again, headwind, I mean, tailwind, big macro issue. I can get behind that. 
And, and so that was, you know, the next wave of, um, of, of the roadmap. And, and we pushed hard on that. And that, that was probably to the, you know, to the day we all kind of, you know, moved into BNC and beyond was probably the number one, the number one issue. You're, you know, it's one thing to, to trade off a cost, which is really the operational side of it. It's another to, to, to operate in sort of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And a lot of these technology, these companies were operating with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like, who's going to be the next Enron? Because I didn't secure a server correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where we came in. That was a, really a big, big revenue driver for the business. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that was the macro move there. And then really the next big wave was this move towards sort of what we now think of as cloud computing, but really this on-demand provisioning capability. Again, a big macro move that has manifested itself largely in, you know, the AWSs of the world. But back then in 2006, 2007, 2008, it was still just, how do I give the business what they need fast without me getting in the middle of it all? And again, big macro problem that needed to be solved. And that was probably the third wave of the roadmap, but they're all tied back to big, big sort of chunky problems that we're trying to solve within these large organizations. So who's identifying that, that those kind of opportunities? Yeah. You know, again, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, we had some really vocal and smart salespeople. Uh, you've talked to a lot of them who were able to identify, uh, these trends because of the conversations that we're having. They had partners in sales engineers who were able to translate that stuff down to at least get it to a point where it was consumable, where I could take it and maybe bring it back to the business on their behalf or drive a strategy with our marketing team around pet positioning. Uh, you know, a good example I said very early on was this uh, Priceline deal we did that really helped us think about moving up stack in the business uh, or in the technology stack, you know, into the application sphere and providing what we do at the infrastructure level to application. You know, we had a ton of really smart folks, especially in, in the UK, in fact, who uh, were said, this is, this is our primary sales uh, go to market with this product. Like, yeah, we'll sell some infrastructure, but this is what we're going to hang our hat on. Mm-hmm. And they were incredibly successful doing so. And they were incredibly successful with infusing the priority of that into the business because they're just their, quite frankly, just their, <laughs> their doggedness of the business saying, this has got to be your priority. We had some good conversations, some very, uh, very uh, contentious but healthy conversations around what needs to be the priority in the business. And you knew when you had those conversations with the likes of a Jeremy Doug you know, or Michael Beckett over in the UK and the sales engineering side that they were not blowing smoke. They're smart people. They, they're in the trenches. They have the at-bats and they know what they're saying. So you got to listen to them. Was that by design? Was that feedback process a mechanism or was that necessity? Was it survival? Was, you know, how, how was it operationalized? Yeah. You know, we had a couple, couple of folks in the, in the, the back of the business unit, uh, myself, it's Derek Hugh, BJ Menwani obviously was kind of leading the charge there. He was obviously front and center on a lot of these calls as well. Probably more than anything, you know, we were all kind of figuring it out as we were going along. You know, none of us really had sort of uh, formal training in that regard. And VJ, you know, was the CTO of the business. You know, he came from a services side of the house as well, right? So we're all trying to figure out how to how to deliver, a, a, you know, a, a roadmap, deliver on a roadmap that was um, very fluid, right? And there was a lot of customers knocking on the door. 
I think it was more born out of necessity, right? I don't think we came in and said, we're going to have this very um, sort of, you know, this, this built, heavily built out process. I think it was more about uh, a little bit of a, you know, reading the, the tea leaves and understanding where, where the business is coming from. And okay, we got we to gotta do that. The other nice part about it too is we had a really strong competitor, <laughs> Opsquare. Mm. And, you know, I, we wouldn't have gotten to where we got, then they wouldn't have gotten where they got if it wasn't, if we, the two of us weren't battling out. You know, in the early days, 2002, 2003, you know, we would, we had, there was probably a dozen companies that you would say that we went against. And I could, you know, there was Marimba, there was ConfigureSoft, there was Center Run, there was, the list goes on and on. Names that you guys probably never heard of that all went by the wayside. You know, we were really a two horse race. Yeah. And it always afforded us an opportunity too when we went head to head with them to see how they were positioning their product and what strengths that they were putting in front of the customer. We always knew whether they got to the customer first because you could see it in the proof of concept test plan. You could see if it was if they got there first or we got there first. And and that helped obviously figure out what gaps we had compared to what they were positioning. So so that helped too. I'm not gonna lie, that was a pretty it's always nice when you have a competitor that's beaten you over the head a bunch of times. You, you can't <laughs> help. You can't help but uh, but listen. We did pretty well against them, though. You know, for uh, for what we had at our disposal. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, it, on that was was the playbook then born out of kind of necessity in terms of the competition with Opsware, or what? What kind of really drove that? Yeah, the playbook really was. You know, we focused uh, a lot on. We focused a lot on the why of, you know, that was a very important part of, of my playbook, but just in general, the company's playbook. Mm. Somewhat born out of necessity because, you know, you see the eyes, but look, at the end of the day, we're selling infrastructure automation software, right? So like, you know, there's only, so you can only geek out so much before the eyes roll over. So you really got to get to the why. Yeah. So teaching people the why and actually force us to think, well, what is the why, right? What, what, what are we really trying to get across here? Uh, forced us to, to really kind of sit down and map out our playbook. You know, we used tools from John Kaplan, the value framework. Uh, I think you've talked to John. We really sat down and we hashed out over the course of, you know, many days. Uh, but really, really, I remember in particular one week where we hashed out this, uh, the value framework workshop where we just put through our paces keep iterating, keep iterating on what the why is, why does it matter? What is, what's better now with your product or, uh, what are the positive outcomes? What are the metrics that matter? You know, to this day, if you woke me up out of a cold sweat, uh, and said, name the, name the five core differentiators for blade logic, I would tell you composite packaging, closed loop compliance, configuration, object dictionary, role-based access control. Uh, maybe that, I think that was four, uh, but, uh, but, <laughs> Right, roll right off the tongue. And I'm sure if some of the guys who are listening right now, they probably shuddered a little bit when they heard me say those. <laughs> who was that present? Was our playbook. Who was present in those meetings? You said you obviously brought John Kaplan. Uh, you had a nickname for what that those. I called, yes, I called it white collar prison, uh, <laughs> and it was probably the most formative week of my entire business career. Watching that that unfold, it was uh, it was a process that, and I think John worked. John Kaplan worked for John McMahon. Uh, that PTC, at, that's at, right, yeah. And that's how that came to be. John had built up his consulting practice. And it was, yeah, John McMahon, it was Vance Loisel, VJ Manwani, uh, it was Vic Vashnavi, myself, 
There were a few other folks we pulled in. Uh, Damon Miller, I think, was pulled in there. It was, I, I remember the, to this day, the, off, the location we were in Bedford, Massachusetts, in the corner conference room. And it was just a matter of iterating through, you know, what really matters at the end of the day uh, when you're selling a you know, value-based selling methodology, right? You have to implicate the pain of what they're going through today so that they can understand how it could be better in the future. Mm. And, uh, it was a wonderful, it's painful, but wonderful experience, exhausting experience. But, you know, anytime you think about value-based selling, like that's, you just, that stuff just doesn't grow in trees, right? You have to really put an honest lens and, uh, and kind of look in the mirror and say, what, what are we really doing here? And why are people really buying? That must've been quite an interesting, um, event, right? There's, you've got some very dominant characters, yeah. I, I suppose, what, what was that like? What was the dynamics like within that room? Who was kind of leading that? Who was, you know, who, who was really driving it? Was there confrontation? Was it heated or, or was it kind yeah. of all in, all in agreement? I, you know, I, I never felt working with those folks, like of some strong personalities in there, David Acheria and Vance and John. Everybody was really like on the same page of trying to get to that ultimate goal. Uh, I never felt like, you know, I was probably one of the more junior guys in that room but never felt like I couldn't speak up uh, or that the opinion didn't matter because they knew we were living in the, we were kind of living in the trenches on this thing. Right. And so they had to trust the lieutenants. I classify myself at the time as a, a, as a, a lieutenant, a key lieutenant there. And yeah, it was John Kaplan. was excellent. In fact, after we got to BMC and I became more of like a general manager BMC, I had him, I had, I, I had him bring that into the business unit. We actually ran that same process in the business unit. He's just such a dynamic uh, person, right? And personality. And he's really able to sort of test you. Okay, you think you're there. You think you're at the goal line. Let's peel this back one. There's a couple more layers here that you haven't thought through. And he does it in such a way that is, it's just so engaging. So obviously he was our quarterback. But, you know, and John and Dave and and were certainly probably the more vocal ones in the bunch, but everybody had a voice, you know, in that room. Mm. That's what made play logic so great. What were the after effects of that? So the after one, we had a crisp, we had a crisp uh, way to communicate about the business. Literally it was a playbook, a physical playbook that was printed out and handed to everybody on the sales side of the house and, and in the business unit, like I said, eventually, uh, and we, the, all we set out to at that point was to train people till they couldn't be trained anymore. Enablement is such a key area that is often overlooked, especially in SaaS now. Oh, get in for one month free and then you can kind of pay by the month and work your way into it. People sort of get a little bit lazy about value-based selling and, you know, why it matters. And why are you making that? Why are we talking now, right? Is it because you can get one month free or is it because, you know, you can actually derive value? You have a pain I'm trying to solve. It just puts you in a different position talking to the customer. Mm. So we just, we, I mean, we would go three days, three straight days in sales training with the entire sales force on value framework training. Mm. We'd have them, we'd have them uh, drive run it and simulate it with each other over and over and over again. And John really led the charge there more than anyone. But once you had the playbook, it was about how do you, how do you beat this into people's head, right? And Jeremy Duggan was big on that. I remember him being on center stage and we had our European kickoff and he said, guys, 
you might think like this feels robotic. You just, obviously there's opportunity to kind of put your stamp on it, but I'll tell you, it works. If you do it, it works. Mm. Um, and we've given you the keys, right? We can unlock the box here. Just mm. try, you know, just, just lean in and make it work for you. And so you didn't have to worry about like, what I'm, is what I'm saying correct? We knew it was correct. We had ultimate 100% confidence that, that what we were built, built was solving the problem. So it wasn't about that. It was how do you get the message through to the people you're selling to? Mm-hmm. If a customer decided they didn't want, we got to the point, if a customer decided they didn't want, didn't think they needed the product, we, we either they weren't, a, they just weren't a good fit. They'll come around eventually, or we're just not talking to the right person. Like we were yeah. so confident that what we had built, what we had for them would solve their pain points that if, if someone's giving you the wrong answer, you just either you haven't done a good job articulating it, sales rep, or you're talking to the wrong person. Because we know, we know it works. We know it's, it's, it solves problems. It was, it was just so ingrained in our way of thinking. Hmm. Was, was the transformative effect of the playbook almost instantaneous? Did it, did it take a while to kick in? Yeah, so, you know, prior to the playbook, you know, we, we were sort of, we had those quick wins out of the gate. And then we had a little bit of, you know, time period there uh, where, you know, deals weren't coming through quite they were. And then credit Steve Strahan kind of came in and showed that we need to puff our chest a little bit mm. uh, and recognize that, guys, you're sitting on, we're sitting on a huge opportunity here. Didn't quite have like the playbook down, but knew like, guys, we got a real opportunity here. So everybody was still kind of kicking around the um, how to message it. But uh, once, we, once we sat down over that course of a couple of months and really honed that framework for kickoff, I forget what year it was, but I would say, I don't know, maybe that was 04, 04 05, somewhere in that range. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was lights out. Everybody got on, the, got on, on board. And if you didn't, oh, John would hold you accountable. John's very good at holding people accountable. So. How did they ensure that the pre-sales organization was, was involved in that process? I suppose, was that your responsibility to kind of bring? Yeah, you know, I was involved. I was kind of, uh, I was sort of advocating on that behalf, right? Damon Miller, who, uh, if you haven't already talked to him, I'm sure you will. He would, he ran our, our Northeast team and was very, you know, very tight with the group. And, you know, he was, he, he was a Unix admin at a prior life. So, you know, again, they lived it. And so what we did is we used them definitely as a way to fit, make sure that the pain points that we were trying to solve were legitimate, number one. And then two, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time being beaten into the, the sales engineers, the notion of why is it important? Not what it is or how it works, but why is it important? Mm. And if the why was wrong, they'd let us know. But first we had to teach them how to communicate the why. Because we were hiring Unix admins to be sales engineers. We weren't hiring sales engineers to, or I say Unix, we, we supported Unix and Linux and Windows, but, but we were hiring admins to be sales engineers. And we, in this world, selling infrastructure automation and compliance, that's kind of nitty gritty stuff. You're not gonna hire a professional sales engineer and teach them, teach them how to run a Linux command or you know, some Windows command. It just wasn't gonna work. And mm. so, yeah, they were very formative in sort of validating the why. Uh, they were in every sales uh, kickoff. They, in the early days, they weren't. I recall I, I advocating on their behalf to be as part, be in the sales kickoff meetings. Uh, you know, I think 
I think that was important that they saw how the sales reps were being trained. Uh, and then ultimately that's how we trained them up too. You know, we ran them through their own dry run paces and they had their own talk tracks and differentiation points that I, I made sure we would hammer home with them. And, uh, and that's what we would do. A lot of times we would meet together for a period of time and then sales engineers would break out in sales kickoffs or quarterly trainings. We did so many of these and then, uh, yeah, we would get into the nitty gritty. Mm. Remember there wasn't AWS back then. So part <laughs> of the challenge was how do you mimic a data center on a laptop, uh, that is probably like an IBM ThinkPad or something like that. How do you mimic a cross-platform Windows, Linux, Unix data center that we're selling customers uh, for, you know, they might have five, six, 700 servers and we have to walk in self-contained, no internet access, pop that on and, and kind of, that was, there's a lot of lifting there, right? That, that goes on. So a lot of our sales training wasn't just about how do you get the messaging down? But guys, how do you run it like a little mini data center in your little demo environment? You know, it's a big challenge. <laughs> well, lead with, lead with why is obviously a, a, another one of your kind of playbook elements that you've, you've referenced it quite a few times. Um, and I suppose, you know, so it's a key component that's enabled you to, to bring people with you. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, tr- on that notion, obviously um, transitioning through, through the acquisition to BMC, um, you, you took on quite a big role. Was that, was that right from the beginning? Was that always part of the plan or how, how did that materialize? So I remember it clearly. So we got, we were getting acquired and, you know, uh, at the time I was fully immersed in the sales side of the house. I was reporting to John running the sales engineering team, uh, just out, out in the field, you know, every week traveling to some region, hiring, maybe firing, certainly enabling, meeting with customers uh, for some of the larger strategic accounts. And so I was just in that world. When we got acquired, uh, you know, BMC was creating an automation division. They had a couple of pieces. They had a runbook automation uh, product. They had a network automation product. They had a desktop automation. They didn't really have server and configuration automation like PlayLogic, but they had some of the other parts of the infrastructure. They really didn't have much in the way of a leadership team there. They were in the midst of hiring someone from outside of Blade Logic, a gentleman by the name of Scott Fulton, to be the GM for that business unit. He had prior knowledge work at work at HP and had worked with some of the other BMC folks. Remember, Dave came to me, David Cherry, and said, "All right, tonight we really need somebody who understands what we're, you know we're selling back in the business unit to help you know this next wave of of build out." No, I remember thinking about, you know, I, I really am enjoying my time out here in sales engineering land and uh, in sales land. And uh, he said, okay, all right. And then he came back a week later. He said, okay, this time I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking. <laughs> here's, here's your new title. And, you know, we've all been there or some of us have been there where he said, okay, in a very polite way, but said, okay, you had your chance to politely decline, but now you're, you're going to take this role. And he kind of gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I remember that very clearly walking into the business unit. At the time now, you have 15 product managers across what amounted to four different products. And a brand new general manager who was not from BMC in the role. And now we've got this this juggernaut of a product and the entire sales force is being flipped on its head because of all of the blade logic sales team is now going into these management roles and leading these these regions right 
And so you really needed to have somebody who understood who the people were and, you know, how to, how to kind of get back to the roots. So I, I initially started running that product management team, like I said, about 15 people and eventually effectively became the GM for that business unit after about um, a year or two. Uh, and it was, you know, at the time, I think when I left there, it was probably a, it was north of a 200 million, $250 million business unit, pretty healthy at that mm-hmm. time. So I'm pretty proud of that time. It was a different, different beast, right? You know, we go from Blade Logic's got a couple of product managers, maybe at the time of acquisition, three or four, maybe five. Now we got 15, got four products. You really learn for, for the first time how to manage a portfolio because Blade Logic, you know, while it was a very large product, was one product, right? Yeah, we sold modules, but it was at the end of the day, it was one platform. Now you've got to figure out how to spread the wealth, not only within the automation division across four or five products, but now there's, you know, there's within the distributed soft uh, business side of the business, BMC. Now you have Remedy, uh, BMC Remedy, which was a help desk ticketing system. You have the monitoring system as uh, a business unit. And then oh, don't forget, there's a whole mainframe division over here on the other side too, right? So it's very much a portfolio exercise. We got to learn how to operate within that context. Mm. Was that something you adjusted to straight away, having been such a key component since the very early days of Blade Logic to suddenly be in a very large software company? Was that a cultural shift you needed to go through? Or? Definitely. Uh, it definitely. You know, BMC, uh, people ask me about BMC. I learned a lot about, you know, how to operate within a larger portfolio. Mm. Um, but BMC was a, a, a nice company. And by that, I mean, everybody was very... <laughs> very polite with each other and, uh, you know, didn't want to step on too many toes. This is my opinion and how my experience. Yeah. Blade Logic, we were very much kind of in each other's face in a very constructive, but like partnership oriented way. But if, if the sales guy didn't like the way something was going down, they'd let you know just as much as the next person, right? They felt very empowered that way. Yeah. And, and so it was definitely a, a, a change, right? And that, you know, uh, you know, Houston based headquartered, uh, and, you know, obviously just born out of this much larger, highly distributed revenue stream that they were managing. So it was definitely a bit of a, a little bit of a culture shock, but the same token, I said, you know, let's just put your head down and recognize that like, you're going to learn a lot about how to operate a portfolio. Mm. Um, and again, coming back to the roots of what, uh, what I said at the beginning, which was I never viewed myself necessarily as a technologist. I think that the skill set could apply in a lot of different ways. And so I said, hey, this is another skill set, you know, managing a portfolio, understanding how that happens, how to manage a PL. You know, we didn't have to worry too much about a PL at Blade Logic. It was just sell, sell, sell. <laughs> and uh, you know, good things will happen. And so so those were lessons that were definitely worth learning. But yeah, it took a little bit for sure. It certainly helped once the sales leadership sort of really became much more of a sort of a blade logic run sales team. Mm. That certainly that side of the house certainly changed for the, I think for the better. Mm. How did the, the playbook help you at BMC? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing now, you know, we talked about the why earlier, the why was often in the early days was tell them why, patching is important or provisioning or compliance or making changes to discrete objects on a server are so important to your livelihood. 
The why became much more strategic and big picture at that point. And that's what more I have to deal with now, which is, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I still have to explain the why. The why might be, why are we investing this way, right? Why are we not investing in an area that maybe someone thinks we need to go invest in? Uh, the why is about painting a picture of a future state that's maybe many miles down the road. You're looking at that mountain way off in the distance and saying, why should uh, people working for me, why should they take that long journey to the top of that mountain? Have I painted appropriate enough picture? And so the why became, as a leader in that team group, became for me is painting of that why, that level of a why, which was different, very different than what I was, you know, rolling up the sleeves at Blade Logic. But it still holds true, right? The people, you implicate people in the process, they, they might not totally always agree, whether that's how you position Blade Logic or why we're going down this totally different strategic decision with, you know, with a go to market. But at least they understand. At least you've explained your side of, of you know, why you're going down this approach. And you know, they can choose to go on the journey with you or not, right? At the end of the day, no one's held hostage. But I feel like that's, that's kind of carried through with my daily, daily kind of leadership style. Make sure people understand the why, and then they can make the decision on whether they want to go with you on that for that journey. But at least you've done your part there. Sure. And I got that out of BMC at the beginning part of BMC because it was such a moving object, right? We had these acquisitions, and we're part of a larger team now. And people are like, "Who should I be listening to?" Right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of noise in the system, right? And so you really got to focus on clearing it up. And I think the why does that. Yeah. So obviously, much larger organization, lots of moving parts, lots of different people in lots of different positions. How did you get them all to then fall in line with the direction that you wanted them all to march? Yeah, I mean, you have some wins there and you have some certainly some, some losses in that regard. But uh, a couple of things I think were going really in our favor there. Number one is you've got this new newly formed division, this automation division, and it was the growth engine for BMC, right? BMC was spending a lot of time managing its mainframe customers, which was a big source of revenue, but not exactly a, a growing business unit from that standpoint. Uh, you had, uh, you had remedy, which was a, a big behemoth in the ticketing system, right? As service now came along and sort of put them on their heels, but you know, big revenue stream, again, not a big grower, Monitoring kind of had been there, done that, a lot of players in that space. And so, you know, we were kind of a lot of people were putting energy into that, into the automation business unit. And so uh, it didn't, it didn't take a lot for, and there was a lot of people who wanted to join the ranks, right? You'd see people coming from monitoring land or the other parts of the business saying, Hey, how do I, how do I get on that train? Um, and so it wasn't that you had to really sell uh, people on the need to, you know, put more energy and focus and attention on automation. So that, that was going in our, our favor. The other part we're going in our favor, like I said earlier, was the, the field, the management ranks uh, were very much crafted out of Blade Logic, And so they inherently knew that that was probably their mail ticket, right? It's one thing, it's very hard to get unseat somebody who's uh, entrenched on a ticketing system to go use Remedy, but it's entirely another thing to, to sell them a product that they don't even have in their the customers we have in their portfolio or in their investment portfolio today, right? It's a lot of times it was a trade-off of like manual labor versus automation. So it was greenfield from that perspective. So I think the selling of it was very, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing where you actually had to do a lot of selling. 
all right, of the vision. The biggest thing we probably had to do there was uh, continue to recognize that, like, Belay Logic, I think there was a thought at BMC that you bought that and, okay, we're done. We don't have to go and, like, we've got the stack, uh, meaning we've got everything from server all the way up through the application tier. And yet there were still other products, other parts of the stack that needed to serve, be served from an automation standpoint that Blade Logic just wasn't going to get done. And for example, we went and bought a company called GridApp that was um, database automation software. Right? So selling the business, selling business, okay, you just made this huge investment in Blade Logic. That's not going to get you everything that you're ultimately going to need in this stack. We actually ended up making a, an investment in a company called Furnace, which was J2EE, you know, uh, application management. Same thing. They all do the same thing. They all either identify changes or they make changes, right? It's two sides of, of the same coin, but just at different parts of the stack. So we had to go and educate the, the business unit that, yeah, Blade Logic got you, gets you so far, but it didn't get you all the way. That was probably the bigger part of the, um, of the effort internally. But as far as selling, everybody was on board. They knew this was the meal ticket. Sure. So putting people in the right position is also an element of your playbook. Was that, a, was, was, that was your role at BMC an example of, of that working? For sure, yeah. I mean, I mentioned it earlier. So, you know, we recognized even before BMC that we weren't going to be successful uh, unless we, we had tech, technical depth to our sales motion with the sales engineers. And that's when we said, no, we're going to go find sales engineers who know how to, who, who we think can communicate effectively. We're going to teach them the why and put them in the right position. You know, we had a product that worked and we definitely proof of concept it, but I can tell you just as equally in, in the sales engineers, uh, hopefully, would, and some of the sales folks will corroborate this. Some of the way we won was not just in the product, but how they recognize the technical depth to our sales engineering team. Wow. Uh, and I think of that very much as putting people in the right position to succeed. You know, if we had sort of a, you know, the sales engineer, the, the professional sales engineer who couldn't at lunchtime geek out about the, the latest and greatest innovation in, you know, at Red Hat or, you know, it had nothing to do with our product but it spoke to the level of depth and quality of the individuals we were bringing into the team uh, that we, we would win off that. I heard it right from the customer's mouths. Like, yeah, you guys were better, slightly better. Yeah, you did some things better here, but we trusted you more. We trust your team more because you weren't trying to blow smoke. Your product does work. Yeah, the other product works too, but at the end of the day, yeah, we trust you. So to me, that's a little bit of putting people in the right position to succeed because if we went down the wrong approach there, uh, with not recognizing the value of that technical depth in the sales process, we would have, we never would have made it. That's what Opsor was doing. They were bringing a lot of sales and marketing shine to a very technical problem and not putting the right people in the position to succeed. I mean, I mean, you know, it's all relative. They did pretty well themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's such an interesting part of the blade logic story, especially on the pre-sales side, people like Sahir, Azam and Sun Park who've, who've come from those very technical backgrounds. And um, did, did that change at BMC? We, we then looking for more experienced people once the larger company took over. You know, I, I think what became the, you, you had to tier people at BMC. So there was definitely, mm. uh, the more the larger strategic customers that were being sold at BMC were not just being sold, 
automation software. They're being sold an enterprise bucket deal or what we call the bucket deal, the all in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you needed to have certain folks who could navigate that, that level of sale, which is very different than just selling blade logic. But when it came down to automation, no, we never, we never veered off that course of recognizing for the, for the odd data center automation business unit that you needed to have technologists first. Uh, it's just some of those folks up, up their game. They kind of grew out of the day and down that became more um, sort of uh, trusted advisors and sales consultants in the role. Um, so here's a good example of that. You know, uh, I remember hiring the day we hired him, you know, he, he, he came from IBM, right? Very technical, but you could tell he could communicate effectively and he had lived some of that pain. And then we just, you know, he grasped, he gravitated to the, the value framework and the messaging very quickly. And the sales guys gravitated quickly and he's had a great career for himself. Song as well, right? Song was a database administrator, if I remember correctly, SQL Server database administrator, who yeah. really, you know, but always, always carried himself with a, a style that was very trustworthy and customers gravitated to those people for that reason. Mm. And for pre-sales leaders, maybe looking to do the same thing, um, who are facing challenges, maybe scaling their organization right now. Um, obviously, apart from the technical side, how did you really drill into those attributes? Was it just purely personality or were there further things you were testing for? I mean, we always tested. I mean, we actually actually tested our candidates with, uh, I remember I built a, uh, about a, probably a 20 minute exam that was very technically oriented to make sure they had the technical chops. Mm -hmm. uh, we asked them what they ran at home, what they did for fun at home. And if anybody ever had a, a rack of servers in their basement that they were playing around, you knew that was always a good fit. <laughs> you always knew that. On the leadership side, you know, with a lot of the folks on the sales engineering leadership side, they were not leaders prior to Blade Logic or managers. They had, they, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, think about the ranks we were hiring from. So there was definitely uh, a lot of coaching that had to come along with how do you bring certain um, sales engineers along? How do you enable them? Uh, you know, John always had a saying and you, know, you take it to heart. I always took it to heart, which was, you, you know, when you know, like you can fake, you can, you can hide from it, the decision all you want, but you know, if someone's a fit or not. Mm. So he's like, hey, we can keep doing this dance for the next, you know, months if you want, but you know, and I know, how this is going to end. So we can do it now or we can do it later, but we think all, we all know when we know, right? You look yourself in the mirror uh, and as a leader, as a manager. And so we try to instill that into the team who did not have a lot of management chops to say like, it's not a failure. It's, you know, someone doesn't work out. We're running here at a thousand miles an hour. Everyone's going to make mistakes. And so that was probably a big part of it. Uh, how important enablement of that team because they were raw admins that we're teaching a new skill set to how important enablement was to that function. Uh, those are all things that we had to drill into the management ranks. Uh, most of them got it though. They were a pretty solid group. Um, mm. The Vocker Provocker down in the DC area and Franklin Prey in the Southeast mm. song. Yes. Here. Um, James Hollander in the West, Mike Beckett in the UK, Damon Miller, Mike Nakamura. These guys were all, you know, they'd been with the product a long time. They knew the product. So it wasn't about that. It was really a little bit more coaching on the, on the, the leadership side of the house. Hmm. What, what were the common challenges for those that perhaps didn't make it? Was it, uh, was it aligning to the value side? Was it, you know, being too 
perhaps too technical. Um, 100%. 100%, what you just said, 100%. You knew if someone could, could get over the hump, right, of the, the value framework and understand that we are solving a pain point here. It's not about cool technology. It's about solving a pain point that is costing these companies millions of dollars in some cases. So uh, you'd see it every day when you were going through these enablement sessions and these training sessions of people who really understood the objection handling uh, and could just t- speak to it because they innately understood it, not because I gave them a script or one of the leaders gave them a script and said, hey, if they ask this question, answer it this way. No, they had to really understand it, right? And so a lot of education that we did to, with them was about how to, you know, tweak the messaging a little bit, but ultimately they had to understand it innately. And there were some folks who just, you know, were just a little too technical, right? And they just, they couldn't implicate the pain and, and really line up with that value framework. So, hey, you know, gave it a shot. It's a good try. You know, this, maybe this sales engineering role wasn't exactly the right fit for you. Maybe it's a different role and you move on. But uh, that was almost always the issue in sales engineering uh, world when we were staffing up was that alignment. Can I get them to, to, to walk and chew gum at the same time, so to speak. (laughs) Sure. Fantastic. And um, within your GM role with, uh, with BMC, Tim, you actually became involved in, in mergers and acquisitions at that point. How was the transition to that? Yeah. And I mentioned a couple of those that we acquired, uh, the, uh, that was probably my first view. I was always on the other end, right? I had been through, yeah. uh, the egg rock to breakaway. And then I had been obviously with, uh, blade logic into BMC. So I started from that side of the house. So it was the first time I really got involved in M&A. Uh, and really doing the diligence, uh, you know, part of that, really understanding not only how it fits in from a messaging standpoint, but then, you know, how are you going to um, operationalize, right, uh, the, you know, the business. So, so that was a fun, again, a big lesson learned when you think about going into a portfolio company like that. That's not something you just, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get at Blade Logic, right? Yeah, there was probably some acquisition conversations that were had along the way at Blade Logic, but we weren't in a position to really, you know, make those, that, that kind of investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a, yeah, definitely a, a lesson learned. I remember with that furnace acquisition, there was another company we were about to acquire. And this was just uh, as I was coming into one of the leadership roles there. And uh, I, I joined a little bit at the 11th hour with another gentleman on the R&D side, a gentleman by the name of Brian Trevor, uh, who was a longtime leader on the engineering and product side for, for Blade Logic. And we joined that team very late in the game, by 11th hour. It was a little bit of, hey, just make sure nothing's wrong here. And we both got in a room there uh, after one meeting and said with the leadership, we can't, we can't make this acquisition. Oh, wow. We're not happy. But, uh, but it was the right decision. That company folded up and turned out the emperor had no clothes. And then about a year later, we bought Firmus, which was a direct competitor to that company. Mm. Uh, had a lot better bones to it. So um, having, going through the experience of not only the, what an M&A looks like, but the experience of uh, saying no to somebody who's probably put a lot of energy into making an acquisition and uh, going toe-to-toe with the investment committee on that front, Mm. definitely a lesson learned, you know, in terms of uh, what, what ducks you need to have in a row and 
make sure you've got your talking points squared away because there was a lot of momentum, you know, with those acquisitions. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, I guess having seen that from the other side was, uh, made, made it easier to, to understand what's happening from the startup's perspective. Yeah, for sure. You're definitely, uh, empathetic, you know, these people, you know, they're coming in and in many cases smaller than late logic, right. And they didn't have the benefit of their entire sales team taking over, you know, the sales function at, at BMC. So yeah. at least I had, we had that support system in place. So for sure. And, you know, I take that now, you know, we, where I'm at now, we're, you know, partnering with a private equity firm, uh, Providence Equity Group, to to really make some investments in a real estate tech space, and mm. so we're constantly looking at, at companies through that lens and mm. doing the appropriate amount of diligence. And it's really kind of an everyday, you know, sort of uh, skill set that I continue to utilize that started there. Mm. Cool. And for the startups out there, are, are you? Is it technology first? Is, how crucial is the culture of the business and the sales methodology behind the company such as made blade logic so successful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people is big sort of product led sort of go to market is big these days. And uh, you know, it, part of that's because, you know, back in the day we we're selling these, you know, perpetual license software deals, you know, you could just, you, you were constantly in hunt mode and, and that's the sales messaging was so key. And in mm-hmm. SaaS world, you're very much building a sort of a, um, on, you're constantly reselling the sale in SaaS world, right? You're proving your value day in and day out, and that you know, earns you the right to continue to, to monetize the customer. But I think what happens in that process is people think a, a lot about uh, just because it's product-led go-to-market doesn't mean that you don't have to espouse the, the, the value, right? That value framework is still important just because you're – giving them an easy way, you know, no risk, you know, onboarding, you know, uh, you know, product does a lot of the lift for you. Doesn't mean that you don't have to implicate the pain and talk about how that hurts, what hurts today, right? What, and what are the positive business outcomes you're going to achieve if you use this product? You don't see a lot of that. And I don't see, you know, I get a lot of vendors call me day in and day out and, and you see, I think there's, there's a, uh, complacency or maybe just maybe it's a laziness factor that's a, that SaaS has created in the, in the market around the sales motion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to constantly implicate the pain or, you know, not going to pay, not certainly not going to pay up for it if I pay for it at all, you know? And, uh, and so we try to keep selling, you know, push that in, you know, every, every company that I'm in, do you understand who the buyer is? Do you understand their pain? Do you understand? Have you told them, you know, how would things be better? Right. Um, how are we going to track? What does success mean to you? Mm. Uh, I saw that firsthand. I saw sales reps refusing to engage a, a customer until they had were met with the appropriate people who could answer those questions. Mm. That's what you saw at Blade Logic was an incredible amount of, of uh, confidence in what we were doing there that people were willing. I'm not even, even going to sell you this because you're, you know, I, need, I need to talk to the right person or the right set of people who understand the, the, the challenge, the pain point, mm. uh, which was shocking to me back in the day, day to see a sales rep apply that type of um, methodology, but they were just so confident in it. So I do think we got to get back to that a little bit, you know, in, in this, in the, the way things are going these days, it's a little, it's a little complacency that I think, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily help the people on the sales side of the house. Mm. 
Sure. So five years at BMC, 2008, 2013, and then Yota, where you joined Vic. Is that right? Yeah, Vic. Triple V, we call him. Vic Varen Vashnavi. Triple V. Yeah. Uh, so Vic and I, we, we got to know each other very, uh, very closely at Blade Logic. So a good example of enablement. You know, I ran, you know, a lot of the, uh, the um, new hire, new employee training back at headquarters. Not, you know, actual product training, differentiation training, the value framework stuff they'd get to learn. And I remember Vic in that, that session, day one, asking these questions and just really, really like, I was like, okay, we've got, we've got a guy here who really knows this stuff because he's asking the 201 and the 301 questions, not the 101 questions. And you guys remember some sales reps later on coming to me years later being like, Oh boy, that guy, like I was just trying to figure out what, what was up and what was down. And this guy's asking like the, you know, the, the doctorate level questions. So they, they were definitely wowed by him. But Vic and I, we spent a lot of time, again, back at that perch of being the translation engine for the business. Yeah, whether I was in sales engineering or product management, whether Vic was running marketing or what, a lot of times we were the translation engine for the business. Uh, so we'd hole up in a room for hours on end at Blade Logic and, um, and you know, figure out what our messaging was, what our objection handling was. Are we missing out on an opportunity, a packaging opportunity? Uh, and really strategize on the go-to-market together. Uh, and so that's where we sort of, you know, formed that bond in the trenches at Blade Logic. And then yeah, he, he, moved, uh, he moved to uh, another company and then, and then jumped to, to, uh, to Yoda, which was uh, in, in the e-commerce acceleration space, really in sort of the op- e-commerce optimization. How do you make sites more engaging, faster, sort of like a next generation Akamai. And for those who know Akamai in the CDN space, um, great technology and uh, some really great people in that group. And, you know, we grew that revenue stream pretty aggressively. Uh, you know, the big struggle there was, I think back to the, what we just talked about was identifying a set of salespeople who really could implicate the pain. Uh, it was always easy to go with the big 800 pound gorilla. No one's going to get fired for for signing Akamai up instead of this little upstart. Um, but really f- catching lightning in a bottle and finding like a, a way to articulate that pain and getting the sales team to really understand it. You know, that was a product that you could very easily up uh, ramp somebody up on product wise, like get them up and running on it. And if they, you know, wanted to hit eject on it, they could very easily hit eject on it. And so implicating the pain was incredibly important. I feel like we did that for a couple of years there, didn't quite have the outcome that the board was looking for. And so they decided to change um, uh, the management team around. I stayed on for a couple of years after that uh, and, uh, and then made my way here to property base. So I love, oh, I still have very fond, fond memories of working with Vic and the team there. Uh, another Blade Logic folks, a couple Blade Logic folks, Jason Garbus, who worked for Vic in the marketing group, was was part of that team. But um, but ultimately, you know, had to move on and reconnect with the old band there. I, that is uh, Vance Loisel. Go back to my roots. So <laughs> having fun over here at Property Base. Fantastic. And uh, so two years now at, at Property Base. Um, tell us about how things have gone so far, and and what does the future hold. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, so you've got like, you know, this horizontal play in data center automation uh, and, you know, it served a bunch of different markets, a bunch of different verticals. 
then you kind of come out, you know, kind of recognize, you know, a lot of things are being verticalized, right? And so you start moving your way out into e-commerce space, which is again, multiple, few different verticals, but you know, a little bit less horizontal than the data center automation play. And now I really moved the needle to a full vertical play with real estate tech, right? I can't get much more verticalized than that. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, the, it, there are a couple of different industries that are just typically laggers with data technology adoption and insurance tends to be big on that. Um, they were probably the last vertical we really made any headway with, with blade logic. And that was probably largely born out of the regulatory compliance requirements. Mm. Uh, sort of begrudgingly had to go there, but a lot of them, I think, struggled to adopt technology, but real estate for sure. Uh, but we're starting to see a pretty much a, a bit of a transformation, right? You know, you've got a lot of uh, next, like the next generation of, of folks are coming in and either they're picking up their, the, the brokerage that their parents ran or they're starting a new brokerage and they're coming to it where they were, you know, they grew up in the digital age. And so they were expecting product and technology to, to move the needle for them, uh, which is great. So there's a ton of investment going into real estate tech right now off the back of that notion. And you're seeing a ton of investment and obviously we're, we're trying to, uh, trying to do the same with our partners at Providence. Mm. So you joined as VP of operations, but since October, 2019, you're now president of uh, property base. So what is your role as president? Yeah. So I, I oversee a lot of the day-to-day operations uh, of the business. Uh, Vance obviously is the CEO. He's still very heavily involved, but very much still on the strategic side too, right? He's oftentimes vetting potential investments we're going to make, um, working with our partners at Providence to identify the, you know, the next tranche of investment um, or assets that we think we need to round out the portfolio. And I'm working with all the major functions. When I first came on board, you know, I spent the majority of my time focused on the software we would sell to the brokerages. We'd have software that sell both to brokerages, but also to individual agents and teams. Now we've since acquired some technology in that space. And so I've had to expand sort of my, you know, focus to, to cover not just a portion of the portfolio, but the full portfolio. Always had an eye on the P&L from, you know, the VP of operations role, but, you know, kind of have even more control over that in the, in the role as president. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, a lot of it's day-to-day driving strategy, meeting with the team. Uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're all about, rolling up the sleeves, you know, there's not a lot of layers of management, you know, we're a 150 person organization. Uh, and so we're all willing, we're all willing to, to get our hands dirty, uh, you know, to get us to the goal. Mm. Fantastic. And what, what are the, uh, factors that have allowed you to scale your career? So, so consistently and so well, Tim, Do, is, is it the variety of roles you've had or? Yeah. You know, uh, I've had a lot of different roles and a lot of different functions. I remember at Blade Logic, it got to the point just to go back there. I remember where I probably got to this. I finally kind of got to that point of confidence where I, I'd go to a meeting and, and would ask the sales rep, okay, uh, you know, what role do you need me to play today? Do you need me to be the CTO? Do you need me to be the uh, VP of professional services? Do you want me to be the, you know, the, the sales guy, strategy guy? Like, what do you, what do you need today? Uh, because I had seen a lot of it in that, in, in my time there played logic and since, 
But I think the success, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but I'll go back to it is the, the element of understanding being that translation tool for the business. Um, a lot of people get sort of that myopic view of just the part that, that, that impacts them. But we all know that it's a continuum. We all know that you push one, you push in one area, it's going to pop in the other. You know, if I don't solve the sales go to market and position the right product for the right pain, then it's going to pop out with an unhappy customer and churn on the backside. Um, <clears throat> if I, uh, don't make the appropriate technical R&D investments, then, you know, that's going to result in, you know, an EBITDA issue down the line on the, you know, on the, in the business. So, you know, identifying the fact that they're all interconnected and the fact that, um, you know, that a discussion around pain ultimately needs to translate to something actionable on the back end and vice versa, something that's innovative on the back end for one reason you need to make sure that that message gets out on the front end. That translation engine is probably the number one thing I hang my hat on. And all the folks that you've talked to that have gone on to GM roles, uh, CTO roles, I've had this conversation with them. I've mm -hmm. said exactly that to them. Don't worry about what the title is. Are you a translator for the business? And if you're a translator for the business, you'll find water will find its level, right? And you'll find that, yeah, I want to be a CTO or I want to be, you know, VP of sales or a sales engineering leader or a GM, mm. but you're never going to lose that ability to translate for the business. That's probably the most important thing that I take away. And I think that's contributed to my success. Yeah. Amazing insight there. Mm. So Tim, who is the most, so 32 years now you've dedicated working exclusively within this tree. That's a very long time. Who do you think is the most influential person on your career? Well, 32 would put me at 11 when I got started. So I, I think you're a little long, but it has been about 20 some odd years, but uh, 25 maybe at this point. 20, 22. 22, sorry, my bad. 20, 22. Yeah. That's all right, you're dating. I know the hair is getting a little gray, but I, was, I, was like, I still got a couple of uh, couple <laughs> years. Um, number one, I mean, look, I mean, Vance has been a huge mentor to me. Uh, it still is, still, you know, take a lot of direction there. Mainly because I think he's had that sort of, you know, I say this, you know, very respectfully because I come from it too, this jack of all trades sort of master of none approach to it, right? You know, being able to see a lot of parts of the business has afforded us the ability to be able to bounce in and out. Um, and, and so I think that's incredibly, incredibly effective. I mean, you know, you can't, you, nobody in this, this talk track is going to, is in this series is going to, uh, answer that question without mentioning John Mann, right? Because of how just influential he is, just so charismatic leader. Um, and just so personable, just so, and so trustworthy, right? You really, really just know, like you align yourself with good people, good things are going to come. And that's partly why, I've, you know, we, we stay. That's why, you know, we exit and go and talk to Vic and, and meet, work with Vic for a few years and then come back and work with Vance. Um, it's why that group's so tightly bounded because we knew it was quality, quality individuals, you know, and started with VJ and Dave, but ultimately, you know, yeah, if I had to hang my hat in terms of the people that I spent the most time with there, probably yeah, Vance and, and John um, really taught me the most on how to lead. So I, I suppose if you were to kind of give some, some general advice um, to, 
aspiring sales leaders, pre-sales leaders, or, <clears throat> or kind of technical folk that are kind of finding their way in the world of pre-sales or some of the other kind of associated avenues within within that world. Um, what, what, what advice, what's the best advice you could give them? Yeah, so I would say, uh, especially in the world where... It, where you know there's plenty of products out there where the sales guy has to also be their sales engineer but certainly in the scenario for uh you need to make sure that when it is a technical sale when there is a two two-headed horse here where you're really you know positioning product that requires a little bit more depth than just a regular sales rep can bring to the table that you identify very quickly who the folks are there that are truly treating that as a partnership and those who who uh, who are thinking that it's a box you check along the way during the sales cycle, um, that's critical for your success. So if you're even if as an individual contributor, you know you know those folks who are bringing you to to into meetings that where it's been well qualified, where it's not you're not wasting anyone's time, um, that recognize the the value the skill set you're bringing to the table. And, and hang on to those relationships, right? Those salespeople are few and far between. We had a lot of them at Blade Logic, and that was a lot of the key to our success. But yeah, you don't see that every day out in, this, in, the, in the landscape today. So certainly hold on to those relationships because those are not relationships that are going to uh, just last for that one product or that one go-to-market. Those are, those are relationships that will bear fruit for the entirety of your, of your lifetime. I, I know some of the folks you've mentioned and we've mentioned on the call today, I know I could be selling anything. I could be selling, you know, widgets down the street and I know I could go work with those folks today and we'd come up and we'd figure out the value-based selling methodology and we'd argue about some things, but we know we'd go to bat with each other and we'd value each other's skill sets. So um, that's the value of working in the trenches and going through this experience is you, you have that ultimate trust and faith. But I would definitely say, Focus on that relation, those relationships, uh, and don't think that that's a that that relationship just spans the length of your time at that one company. Because I'm I'm witness to it here. You know those those relationships are bearing fruit, and I you know I I don't see that stopping anytime soon on this front for sure. I still talk to a lot of those folks, still work with some of them, and I'll continue to to look to those people because of the the skill, this the depth of their on of their skill, but also the recognition of the, the, the teamwork that's required to, to win. It was what otherwise a, a very difficult space, right? Everybody's busy. So it's hard to win. It's hard to win in, in enterprise software. You know, you get, how, how are you going to win when you're not riding the right horse? You gotta, you gotta <laughs> make sure you're riding the right horse. So some great advice there. Thank you so much. Uh, so final question, uh, what technology or area, of in, or area of innovation do you think will have the biggest impact on business over the next decade? Yeah, this is a little bit out of left field. I come, I'm in Boston, right? So if I, I, I get, you know, I think about this a lot I'm in Boston and we have a lot, or I'm outside, I live in outside of Boston, but uh, in the Boston area, you see a lot of, a lot of innovation right now. And it's been that way for a while in sort of the clean energy space. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, 
And that's an example of a space that's definitely going to require people to make some pretty significant investments and need to be sold on the value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, have to, you have to really espouse the value there. But I think of that space as, you know, um, being ripe for opportunity, not, I mean, just in terms of just a larger, I go back to those, what are those macroeconomic moves? Where are the tailwinds in the business, right? It started with uh, virtualization for me, right? It's, then it was regulatory compliance. And then it was, well, everybody's buying online. I should go like maybe do some e-commerce optimization because that seems where, you know, the puck is headed, right? That was a year, few years back. Uh, and I think I always think the lens of, you know, where are the big shifts happening? What are big markets? And are they, are they, are the trends your friends? If the trends are your friends, then, then there's probably a space you want to get into. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not a technologist in any one area. I look for business opportunity. And, um, and I think clean energy is, is just at the very beginning of a major, it's going to be a major transformation. And it's not just about how you heat your home. It's going to be everything around, uh, around the, the, the economy. So probably see a little bit of that with the new regime, the new uh, presidency coming into play as well, right over here in the U S but, uh, but it's a big, big opportunity and the trends are your friends. So ride the wave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much for the insight. So um, I suppose this is the point in the interview where we, we summarize what we've heard. And I think you kind of just touched on some very, very key, key points, which I think have really kind of been, been evident throughout the entire session. And I think it starts right from the beginning, which is the macroscopic lens that's really giving you the perspective to really identify those trends. You, you mentioned the trends of your friends and, you know, identifying the tailwinds. And I think what's interesting is, is that you've used that mindset to enable you to translate the, the big why. And actually, the reason why you're able to translate the big why is because you do listen to your customers and you really understand who, you know, that you use what they can offer to give you the direction to identify those trends. And you've been able to continue to use that to elevate yourself and grow and continue to be relevant because you're always talking the language of value. And I think this is what's been so evident about the conversation that we've had today in the session today is you're someone that's, that's been able to make their way from a university graduate with limited technical proficiency by your own admission to a president of a very, very high potential technology company. And that's a real testament to, 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 the, to those virtues. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for the trip down memory lane. It's uh, not every day that you get to do it. And it offers some perspective that hopefully, you know, I bubble up the things that, that sometimes get lost in the day-to-day shuffle. You guys have helped to, to do some of that. So I, I love listening to the series and I'll, uh, I'll continue to do so. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. I think um, so, so much great experience and so much valuable advice as well. Thanks again. All right. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for our listeners and our viewers for, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed the session. I'm sure you've taken lots from, uh, from Tim's interview today. 
If you've enjoyed what you've seen, please remember to subscribe. Please do like, comment, and share. There's lots and lots of content available on our website. So do please check out so muchsoap.com forward slash blog. And we look forward to welcome you to another show very soon. Thank you.